We read from Mark's Gospel, the 8th chapter, beginning in the 27th verse. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? am. Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me... And of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let us pray together. O Father, Father of all mercies, we find ourselves this morning in the middle of another busy fall with much activity, with much buzz and movement, and we, many of us, are tired and fatigued, and we don't know when we'll rest until Thanksgiving and then rest again until Christmas. Have mercy on us, Lord. Meet us in those places. Others of us, Lord, watch the whir of activity around us and think, why are we alone? Why is our schedule empty? And we're burdened, Lord. Come to us in those places. If we're honest, Lord, whether busy or not, all of us wrestle with a sense of emptiness often, a sense that our brokenness is very deep, and we wonder if you can really mend us or mend the world truly. Come to us there, Father, in these places. Holy Spirit, Spirit of the living God, come to us today in all of those places and all the ones in between And show us Jesus, the King crucified for us, the King who reigns by a cross, who loves us to hell and back, and loves us up to heaven, and brings heaven down by a cross. Jesus, may we embrace that cross of yours as our only hope in life and in death, our great comfort at every step of the way our encouragement that you love us in such a way that you will not let us go. But Lord, also may we embrace the cross as our 
pattern of life. May we pick up our crosses and follow you so that the love you came to share with us keeps being shared and multiplied out for the world around us. That is our mission, to embrace your cross for us and to carry our cross with you, Lord. Help us to engage that mission afresh or even for the first time this morning. We pray it all, Jesus, in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, today is my birthday, and my dear wife decided not to come with me on this trip because she had more important things to do, namely go to the Auburn-Georgia game yesterday. She's an Auburn graduate. Uh, One of my daughters and her husband are Auburn graduates, and my son is a UGA student. So they rallied there in Auburn, and my wife was very, very, very happy uh, about things yesterday. She sent me a great birthday text this morning. We'll celebrate when you get back, but she's not here today. She's the best. She is awesome. I want to tell you just a little story about how we met. We met at a Christian conference, one just like I went to, uh, except for it had 18,000 college students at it. It was called KC83. It was in one of the coldest winters in American history. My diesel car that I drove up from Central Florida froze over. That's how cold it was. It was freezing out there. It was below zero uh, Fahrenheit most of the time we were there. And, uh, and so I'm sitting on the end of a row, like, like in an auditorium like this, and this beautiful red-headed girl from Alabama came up and said, hey, can we sit with y'all? I said, absolutely, absolutely. God gave me a very good seat that day. I was on the end. She sat next to me. We, we sat through the meeting. We knew each other for an hour and a half. I said, come with me to my friends. We're going to eat, and so she did, and so we go to Wendy's, the red-headed restaurant, right? She's red-headed, we're in Wendy's, the red-headed restaurant, believe it or not, I know you can't see now, I was very red-headed, okay, so we're all there, and she goes, hey, Paul, you know, if we know each other now, an hour and a half, hey, you know, if we got married, we'd have all red-headed kids, and we did, and we do, so we've got four children who are all grown. One's a Tennessee grad and married to a Tennessee grad, and they met in our church and through RUF there at Tennessee, and they live in Greenville, South Carolina. They have a little baby girl who we adore, Charlie. Uh, my second daughter lives back down in Austin. She's a Vandy grad. Um, and then uh, my daughter who went to Auburn, she and her husband, they live in Birmingham, and my son is there in Athens. So that's, that's a little bit about our crew. We just moved, Fran and I did, from Knoxville to Athens about a year ago, and I am still struggling with that move. You know, I, 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 as I reflect 55 today, okay, you realize fully in the middle of life, like that's a euphemism, right? I'm on the backside for sure, right? I don't want to live to be 110, okay? So surely I'm on the back end of midlife. But you realize that some things are for the young, right? When we take care of our granddaughter and she spends the night, we love every second of it. Except for that 5.30 a.m. wake-up call that is not going to be put off. She's going like a freight train at 5.30 in the morning. And I groan and say, oh, honey, I can't do this. Parenting is for the young, right? You know? Uh, When I run, you know, I go out and run. What used to feel easy is so hard. I'm thinking exercise is for the young. But especially, right, I've learned afresh, moving is for the young. It's so hard to everything, like, gets broken, You know, everything that you have gets broken. I counted up. We have made 12 moves 
in 31 years of marriage, and I can almost remember all the moves by the things that got broken, a family heirloom, a table, a favorite piece of china, uh, a, 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 you know, a glass here or there. I'm just the sounds of moving uh, are sounds of haunting, sounds of breaking, right? But it's also like your life gets broken. you got to have new patterns, new ways of doing things. When we moved to Athens, I sat there at the restaurant the first night after we moved in and said, I don't want to do this. I don't want to get to know new people and go to new restaurants and find a new place to walk my dog. I don't want to do this. And, and, and my wife, after 31 years, knows when I'm ranting. She just let it pass. But she said, yeah, it's going to be hard. It's going to require change. Things are getting broken. Brokenness, sounds of things breaking, are how Mark starts his gospel. Breaking sounds are what you hear all through the early sections of Mark. A leper is desperately in need of healing and cleansing and restoration in society. And he's crying out, A man is paralyzed and has to be carried around on a mat because he cannot even move on his own. And he's so desperately in need of standing up and walking and going. Crowds are in need of hearing the authoritative teaching and direction of God, hope for their lives. And while they're listening and yearning for the food of God's word and teaching, they're, they're literally starving, having been out in the desert for days at a time, and they need to be fed. People are oppressed even by the demonic. We meet a man in Mark 5 who's living in chains, who can't even keep himself clothed because he strips the clothing off of himself. Oppressed, even possessed by the demonic. We meet a woman who's so exhausted from trying to find a cure from internal bleeding of living her life literally doubled over. She spent all she has looking for a cure. Parents are desperate to get healing for their children who are dying of fevers. And everyone is carrying around the great burden of their sins and their shame and their sense that God has abandoned them, perhaps collectively as a nation or maybe especially personally as an individual before him. Breaking is everywhere. Now, into all those sounds of breaking... We meet Jesus, and he steps in as the promised king, as Messiah, as God's anointed one, who we discover is more than just a king of old, more than just another David come. He's the son of David talked about who would be God's special king. God somehow himself even come in. As Jesus comes into the scene, right, he begins to mend things. He begins to heal the broken things. He he not only heals the leper, he says, I am willing to be clean. He touches the leper. Lepers never get touched. They live alone. They live, they, they can never be touched by anyone except for other lepers. Jesus not just heals them, he touches them. The man on the mat gets put in front of him, and Jesus says to him, yes, stand up and walk, pick your mat up and go home. But he says first to him, right, child, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't just teach the crowds, right? He feeds them with just a few loaves and fish. And there are baskets and baskets full left over for 5,000 and then 4,000 after that. There's a storm 
that's almost going to swamp and overwhelm sailors and fishermen who've been on this lake their whole lives. And he comes to them in the storm, and he calms them. And he says, peace, be still, and they come to the other side. He, he heals the bent-over woman and restores her while he's on the way to heal a child dying for a frantic parent. He puts that man out in the tombs, oppressed, possessed by demons, back in his right mind. He's clothed. It's beautiful. He's mending things. He's making everything new. He's even taking shame and guilt away from people. And he says, I've come not to save the righteous, but for sinners to seek and save the lost. It's beautiful. And then he does this. Right here at the turn, right here in the middle, he starts talking about dying. The Son of Man, the Christ that you spoke of, he must suffer at the hands of Jews and Romans, at church courts and civil courts, and he must be put to death, the worst kind of death imaginable, and he's going to lose. He's winning. We're winning with him. And he says, I have to lose. Uh, when we lived in Knoxville for 13 years, it was a bad, bad time to be a Tennessee Vol fan. It hasn't gotten much better, you know. But it was really bad for those 13 years. And uh, the one bright spot on the Tennessee athletic landscape was this hiring of this basketball coach that nobody knew about that took this little school in Wisconsin, Wisconsin, Milwaukee, all the way to the Sweet 16, and he gets hired. I was with the athletic director of the University of Tennessee at lunch when Bruce Pearl was hired to be the coach because the AD was a member of our church in Knoxville. And Bruce Pearl comes, and so my daughter and her future husband are in the cafeteria, and in walks Bruce Pearl, and he has lunch with college students. He says, hey, I want you to come to my games, so I'm coming to eat lunch with you. They said, great, we'll be there. Everybody loved him for this. He gets on national TV, right, and strips off his shirt and paints up for the Lady Vols and Pat Summit. It's not a pretty scene, but everybody loves him for it, right? It's amazing. He takes players that nobody knows about, that are horrible, that have had losing season after losing season, and he starts winning with them. And then he starts recruiting his own players and winning and winning more. And Tennessee gets a two seed and then a one seed in the NCAA. And then they're the number one team in the nation in the polls. We're going to win. Tennessee's got hope. And then what happens? Bruce Pearl has to go. There are allegations of recruiting violations and then allegations of covering those violations up. Bruce Pearl has to go, and my friend has to be the one that helps him go. Now pick your team, your sport, your group, your, your, your ensemble, and put that in, your church and your pastor, and say, we're doing things, we're going forward, the plan is working, and then the leader has to leave, and it's all going to crumble. Multiply that in times, not just five times, ten times, in times. And that's what they're feeling. No, Jesus, you can't, right? Peter, who's just said, you're the Christ, now says, Jesus, don't talk like that. 
Did you catch the language? Peter rebukes Jesus for talking like that. It's the same language that's been used for Jesus rebuking the demons, casting out demons from other people that he's healing. Peter wants to cast out, as it were, the message of this losing of this cross from Jesus. And Jesus will write, have none of it. Why did Jesus say to them just verses earlier, don't go talk to people about me being the Christ? Well, at least in part because they didn't realize he was a Christ who had to be crucified. They didn't yet understand that that the kingship is from the throne of the cross. The cross is his chariot. They did not yet understand that the cost of the project to mend us and mend the world is so deep and so profound. The debt is so large that it can only be absorbed within himself. Jesus has to be broken so that we can be mended. And Jesus says, well, Peter, I'm not going to be rebuked by you. In fact, I'm rebuking you, and you're talking like Satan. I'm casting that crossless talk out of you. Christ going to the cross for us. I, I love what's on the front of your bulletin here. I asked Colin about it. The, the cock, the, the rooster carrying the cross. How beautiful that is. Picturing Peter's failures, not just here in the middle, but even at the end as Jesus is going all the way to the cross and he denies him, he denies him, he denies him, and then the rooster crows, right? But here the rooster is carrying a cross because it's a new Peter. It's a new hope for Peter on the backside of the cross in the resurrection where Jesus comes to him and allows him over the top of his three previous denials to say, Lord, I love you. Lord, I love you. Lord, you know that I love you. The cross gives the hope that over our biggest sins and failures, because, right, what's the ultimate brokenness? Not a body that needs healing, not a family that's ripped apart, not a society in turmoil. The ultimate healing is that we're all desperately guilty before a holy and eternal God, and we need, in place of that condemnation, forgiveness and welcome and love. And we need not just that before we come to Jesus. We need it all along the way with Jesus. And here's the rooster crowing, singing, as it were, a new day for Peter and all of us because Christ went to the cross for us. Your mission starts with realizing Jesus had to lose for you this way. He had to so that you could win peace and joy and hope with God. And that can be celebrated all along your journey. Just one little story from my journey. I was a young pastor. I was down in Austin. We were the first church plant. You're a church plant of Park City's Prez. Well, we were the first ones, Redeemer Austin, 1994. And we're down there, and we're building the church, and it's going along and my wife and I go, our, our four children now have come along, and, and it's our 10th anniversary. And so we go on a trip 
And uh, my parents come. It's the end of the school year. And they come and take care of our children. We go on this trip and we come back. And we have a reunion around the supper table. I can still see us in the kitchen. They're eating together. Mom and dad are there. We're home. The kids are, Daddy, school is out. We finished school. We had a great time with Joji and Jimbo, our grandparents. It was awesome. Daddy, school is out. Summer has begun. It's great. I said, yes, that's great. I can still hear myself saying this in young dad slash young preacher voice. Yes, but how did you do with the special projects I left you? It wasn't enough that they were finishing the last week of school, you know. I had to give them some extra special projects to do. Well, Daddy, we didn't do those. We finished school. It's summer. We had a great time. And I could still see myself there looking at them saying, well, next time, in my young father preacher voice, I want you to be a better steward of your time. Oh, how stupid. Please, dads, don't do that. Listen to a grandfather. Don't do that. I can still see myself walking down the hallway from the kitchen to our, bathroom, to our bedroom after dinner. And, and in the strongest, most direct voice the Holy Spirit has ever spoken to me. The Spirit impressed this upon me. Paul, what kind of steward have you been? And that began a season of reflection all summer about my life and my journey with Jesus. And, and the Holy Spirit pressed me toward two places. One of them was the opportunity I had to work in a national role with another of the agencies of the PCA at that time to work with RUF and campus ministry. And I was convinced that's the best thing that I could do is go and work nationally for RUF. And I was offered a position to do that, but I was so convicted that I was disqualified from doing that because I had publicly spoken so ill of the previous person in that job in multiple settings that it was not right. No matter who asked me to do that, I couldn't do it with good conscience, and I turned that job down. And so the best thing I thought I could ever do for the church, I had disqualified myself. And then the other place the Holy Spirit took me was remembering an event from a couple years earlier where through mutual friends at Park Cities. Um, had connected me with the governor of Texas there in Austin with George Bush when he was serving as governor. And we met in his office, and the knocks on the door started five minutes after I got there to sort of get me out of there, right? But he kept chasing away. No, 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 no. And after five minutes, 10 minutes, we stayed together an hour. He showed me his baseball collection on the wall. He, he talked about his journey with Jesus, how Billy Graham had witnessed to him and how he had come to faith what it had been like to put aside alcoholism and to walk in sobriety with the help of the Holy Spirit. He talked about raising his daughters in the way of the Lord. He read, had me read a speech that he had written, and he wanted to see if it was faithful to the Christian perspective. And then he handed me his favorite book, a biography of Sam Houston, and he said, here, Paul, I want you to read this. And I want you to read it and then call me back and I want you to come back and talk to me. And I took that book home and I read it in several weeks and I never called him back. I don't know why it's the stupidest thing I've ever done in my life. I don't know why. But I wasn't a very good steward. And already a couple of years later, he was headed to the White House. And I hadn't even swung at the pitch 
of trying to give spiritual encouragement and help to the man that would be the leader of the free world. So that's what kind of steward I'd been. And I told all that story at the end of the summer when we went on family vacation to my father. We were riding down the road to go see my uncle who was near death. And uh, I told him that story just like that, just like I told it to you. And I was driving the car, and my dad says from the passenger seat, well, son, isn't that why Jesus came for us? Isn't that why he went to the cross for us? And I said, yes, dad. Yes, it is. And I began to weep so hard, I literally had to pull over. Because there was this sense that the cross really was enough. My brokenness was so deep. And the dysfunction in my being was so deep, I didn't even know why I didn't call the governor back. Some kind of reverse snobbery. My pride was so deep, I disqualified myself from two of the best things I could have ever done in my life that I couldn't go back and fix. But Jesus came to die for that. Now, I don't know what your stories are of bad stewardship or your challenges are or the darkest places of your being that you don't want anybody to know about Maybe even the spouse sitting next to you today. Or the parent of the child sitting next to you. Or the friend. But Jesus came to mend that. To forgive that. To bring renewing love and power to you in that. He has to lose so we can win all of that with God. Now, if you've been in the church for very long, you may know that intellectually. You may desperately need to know that more soulishly in your whole being. I pray that you will today. But there's something more that you need to know because the surprise of this story comes next, right? What's the surprise? Jesus gathers everybody around, the disciples and then the crowds, and he says, now, hey, I have to go do this for you. Don't tell me not to. You're talking like Satan if you tell me not to because it's the most desperate need in your life. I have to go do this to you. I have to lose so you can win. But you know what? You have to come lose together with me too. What's he say? If you want to find your life, you've got to lose it. If you're going to follow me, it means carrying your cross and following me. It means denying yourself and following me. What's it mean that we go to the cross with him? It means that the cross is not just the hope that we have around baptism of uh, a gospel that's for all of us, that we get washed in, Christ to the cross for you. But it means, as the rooster's doing here, right, too, not just reveling and crowing of the forgiveness in the air, he's carrying it as the pattern of his life. The cross is not just the ground of our salvation. It is the pattern of our lives as his followers. What's that look like? Well, in Mark it looks like that if you're a friend of a paralyzed man, you'll literally carry him around and do whatever it takes, even lifting him up on a roof and cutting a hole in the thatch and finding a way to lower him down to get this friend in front of Jesus 
for healing and for forgiveness. It means that if you're a little boy and you're the only one who has lunch of a few loaves and fish that your mother gave you, that you'll give it to Jesus and say, Jesus, I don't have much, but this is what I have. It's all I have, and I want you to take it and multiply it and feed people with your love and your grace with it. It means if you're a widow and you only have two copper coins to live on and you're sitting in the temple, the church of the Old Testament, and it's not cared for you the way it should, you still are going to give all you have to live on to the purpose of the temple, which of course is Jesus himself, God come in flesh now, right? It means that you yield all you have to an imperfect church who preaches Jesus. It means that if you're the man who had demons in him, who just said after you've been put in your right mind and the demons are cast out and rush a herd of pigs down into the water, it means that you're saying, Jesus, I just want to follow you. Let me go live a new life to you. And Jesus says what? No, I want you to go back to your home where everybody's going to think you're crazy and tell them what the Lord has done for you. It means sacrificial living in the way of Christ where you die daily to self, to comfort, to control so that others can taste and see the love of Jesus through you. They say, wait a minute, Paul, that, that doesn't sound like good news to me. How, how is that part of the gospel? Well, it's good news for at least two really important reasons. Number one, it's the way that you find the life that is truly life. What does Jesus say? If you don't do it this way, if you try to hang on to your life, what? You lose it. If you don't deny yourself, you can't keep anything anyway, right? What do birthdays teach you as you get older, right? When you're 55, you, you want to keep pretending you're 35, right? Let's just not talk about that this is 20 times since I was 35, right? But when you're like 8 or 10, what do you want on your birthday? I'm king or queen of the world, right? I get everything I want. The meal I want, the party I want, the present I want, the people over I want, right? And what happens, you know, as a parent, you dread those days, right? <laughs> because the child becomes miserable before the party's been going on for an hour. It's the same thing if we try to live as though we are the center. Life is miserable. And let me tell you, I've tried it a lot. I can tell you by experience. The life that is truly life is this laying down, is this sacrificial love, is this dying so that resurrection can come to people around you and to you in fresh ways. The other reason it's good news is because it works. Jesus said something stunning in the upper room right before he went all the way to the cross, he said to them, you're going to do greater works than I have done. I've always been puzzled by that, right? How are we going to do greater works than Jesus? We can't perform miracles. We can't turn loaves and fish into food for thousands. We can't heal people. We can't pray prayers that we know every time are going to be answered. What? We can't do that. 
How do we do greater works as the body of Christ than he did while here? By all of us, as his body spread throughout the world, laying down our lives in the way of the cross and so that his love gets multiplied and spread out across the whole world. It really does change everything. I love the old Ben-Hur movie, not the new one. My kids said, Daddy, please don't go see the new one because you're just going to gripe and complain. Don't go see it. So I never saw the new Ben-Hur. But the old one, 1959, you got to see it if you haven't seen it. I make my family watch it every Easter. They're all glad they're grown up now, so they don't have to do that every Easter. But I still do watch it every Easter season. And I love the scene that comes at the end. I'm sorry for spoiler alert, 1959, you know, come on. It's, yeah, hey. <laughs> but I love it there because the way Hollywood does, did it in the old days, right, you don't see Jesus, you just see him from behind. But as he's lifted on the cross, there is just blood coming down from his hands and his side and it's flowing down and it shows in in the best of 1959 special effects that blood scattering down from the edge of the cross and it begins to rain as the storms have come overhead and that blood begins to scatter and spread out and begins to flow out literally around the world so Ben-Hur's mother and sister who've been stricken with leprosy they've been like the man in Mark 1 who can't even be touched who've been living in a leper colony They all of a sudden have been hiding in a cave after watching some of this brutality from a distance. And they come out after the storm. And their servant, who becomes Ben-Hur's wife, looks at them and says, Tirza, your hands, they're clean. Miriam, your face, it's clean. They're healed by this blood of the cross getting spread out to them. And then Ben-Hur comes back home and he's just been raging. He's a man eaten up five times over with rage and bitterness and efforts to, to, to get retribution on someone who's wronged him. And he comes back and he sees his wife. I mean, he sees his mother and his sister and he embraces them and then he tells them all, he says, when I saw him there on the cross, I felt him take the sword out of my hand. And then they weep with joy and embrace That's what happens, is that blood of Jesus gets just spread out across the world through us. We live in mission as we allow the cross to become more and more our hope and confidence in every place of our brokenness. And as we sacrificially walk in that way to lay down our lives in his name, so that message of his love gets spread out all across the world. The reign of the gospel comes down through us. Now, where do you take that this morning? It was interesting at the missions conference, if you were at any of it, that the theme was find your this. What is the next thing in light of the gospel that Jesus wants you to find and discover and live out? I think that's a wonderful theme. It's certainly a great theme for this morning. What is the this? What is this crossness, this cross-shaped hope and living? 
How does Jesus want you to find that and live that in a fresh way this morning? Maybe it's in a marriage that is just very difficult where you put up your hands and you say, I'm not going to fight anymore. I'm not going to demand my way anymore. I'm not, I'm not going to push anymore. I'm just going to love as I've been loved by Jesus, and I'm going to lay the time. I'm going to die and see what Jesus does. Maybe it's to forgive someone who has desperately wronged you because you know what? God has forgiven you infinitely more in Christ, and you just want to freely forgive and no longer hold something over somebody's head. Maybe it is you begin to love someone afresh who's really hurt you, maybe hurt you badly, but God wants you to just go there and die so they can taste an unexplicable, sacrificial love that might not let them go. I don't know. What's your this? Let me tell you what a this was a long time ago for a woman, and it changed my life. This woman in Birmingham, Alabama, her daughter went to a fine Christian school there where my wife was attending growing up. My wife is the most loving, kind person I've ever met. She would tell you it wasn't always so. She would also say it's not really true now. Paul's just saying that, but she's lying about that. Um, but she, she was one of the mean girls at her school, if you've ever seen that old movie. I won't bore you with those details. But she tried to make every new person's life miserable. So this woman, her daughter's newly going to this Christian school where she should be finding Christian friendship. And she finds a girl friend, Duggan, who's making her daughter Tammy's life miserable. Poked fun at, ridiculed pushed out, kept out of things by friend, the mean girl. Well, what Beth decides and discovers is instead of a natural reaction, I want to strangle that child or I want to fight for my child's honor and protection like a mother bear should, I'm going to love. And so she discovers that my wife has two older siblings that are out of the house that she has a dad who is a beautiful Christian man but is consumed with a medical practice and a chief of staff of a hospital and then dies suddenly in his 40s, very young. She discovers she has a mother who is mentally and physically and psychologically ill and not engaging her daughter. And so she discovers this mean girl has really nobody in her life. And so she starts bringing lunches to her because she has none. She starts inviting her over into their family on the weekends because there's nothing for her to do on the weekends because there is no family. She later helps my wife go to college. Going to college, their daughter rode with the mother and the father rode with my wife because she had nobody to take her to college. And all this happened because a woman said, I'm going to give up my right to hate and love instead. Anything that I've ever learned about love, I really have learned from my wife. That wouldn't have happened if Beth hadn't loved Fran that way. Where does Jesus want you to find your this 
to carry your cross and follow him. It will hurt. It will be real death, but real resurrection will come. I promise you, Jesus does too. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. And we pray that you would take this word of the cross and it be our hope in ways it has not. May we know that we are forgiven in ways we've never known. May we know for all of our failures and our foolishnesses and our pride and our ridiculous ways we live so often that there is forgiveness with you. May that overwhelm us, that gospel. But may that gospel move us as well. Move us to carry our cross wherever you tell us, whatever the new it, this is for us. Show us, Lord. May we follow you and may the world be changed because of this. We pray it all, Jesus, in your name. Amen.